0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: So you go to these elephants and you study their networks, you study their behavior, and you find in them the same, I would argue, kind of friendship that you find in us. And I find that incredibly moving. If we can share this property with, with elephants, for God's sakes, we can certainly share it with each other.
0: Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern.
2: And I'm Viveca Morris.
0: Man is a wolf to man, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes wrote in 1655, quoting the Roman playwright Plautus. Hobbes was recruiting the line in support of his concept of the state of nature, first formulated in his landmark work Leviathan. According to that idea... Humanity in its natural condition is, quote, solitary, brutish, and short. Nature, Hobbes wrote, renders men apt to invade and destroy. It's only thanks to civilization, which rescued us from a world of ceaseless, self-perpetuating violence, that we managed to cooperate and care for one another.
2: Hobbes' opposition between nature and civilization still haunts our modern vocabulary. When we speak of primal, biological, or bestial impulses, We are not typically referring to our instincts toward the good, but to those elements of our nature that we have left behind in animals. The idea has even infiltrated science. As our guest, Dr. Nicholas Christakis, has written, there has been, quote, an overwhelming interest in the negative aspects of animal societies, with an extraordinary amount of attention lavished on topics like competition, conflict, manipulation, coercion, deception, and even in other anthropomorphic terms, kidnapping, rape, murder, and cannibalism.
0: In his wise and lucid new book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, Dr. Christakis investigates the biological foundations of our impulse toward the good. For too long, he writes, the scientific community has been overly focused on the dark side of our biological heritage, our capacity for tribalism, violence, selfishness, and cruelty. But our good deeds are not just the products of enlightenment values. They have a deeper and prehistoric origin. We come to this sort of goodness just as naturally as we come to our bloodier inclinations.
2: Dr. Nicholas Christakis is a sociologist and physician known for his research on social networks and biosocial science. Director of Yale's Human Nature Lab and the author of three books and over 150 articles, Dr. Christakis has been elected a fellow of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Last year, Yale awarded him a Sterling Professorship, the university's highest honor. His new book, Blueprint, has been hailed by writers like Steven Pinker, Ann Applebaum, and Cass Sunstein as sweeping, magnificent, and inspiring, a book that is both, quote, deeply scholarly and at the same time a genuine pleasure to read. In 2009, Dr. Christakis was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. Dr. Christakis, welcome to When We Talk About Animals.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, just listening to you read those excerpts of the book uh, so kindly, and uh, and then that introduction. I was trying to think what I could say when, when it came to be my turn. Thank you for having me.
0: So you've written that although you study social networks, you happen to dislike crowds. And you, <laughs> you open the book with a scene from your childhood that had a lasting impact on you. I'm wondering if we could if you could take us there.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I you know I, I it's odd for a person who spent his life studying social phenomena that i I tend to be sort of more solitary in my inclinations. i'm I'm very happy when I'm in my room with my books sort of alone thinking or with my in my lab, with my students, the small groups. And large groups have always sort of alarmed me. Um, the story I tell at the beginning of the book is one from when I was twelve in nineteen seventy four. My mother had both. My parents were Greek. They had immigrated to this country, and um, we had gone back to Greece for the summer. This was in July, late July, and the um, the on that particular day, the military junta that had ruled Greece since 1967 um, had failed, Uh, was collapsing, and my mother was the kind of person who really wanted us to see the world, wanted us to understand human beings. Was uh, wanted us to participate in historic events, and so she, as you'll see in a moment, made a certain set of decisions which were rather interesting. So on that particular day, I think it was July twenty third, the um, the uh, junta was beginning to fall. They had sent soldiers out into the streets. Uh, pathetically saying, you know, people of Athens, stay indoors and of course, people were going to have none of that. And enormous crowds converged onto Syntagma Square in central Athens, uh, Constitution Square. And uh, my grandfather's house where we were staying is not far from Syntagma Square. It was about four or five blocks, let's say, from the square. And my mother decided that she sh- we should go out. So I was 12 and my brother, Dimitri, was 10. and. Um, she uh, And this was very late in the evening uh, because the, uh, the, the prime minister, the former prime minister of Greece, Konstantinos Karamalis, was returning from uh, – I think he had been in exile in, in, in France and he was returning uh, from France in the middle of the night and the crowds had converged and it was maybe 10 o'clock when we left the house. and We started walking towards the square and it was just body to sweaty body. It was packed. Uh, and people were screaming, uh, they were screaming, you know, which is a, a denunciation of the torture that had happened during the junta and Americani," which means out with the Americans and all these chants. And, uh, and we, we got about a couple of blocks from Sindegma Square and uh, where the National Zoo was and there was this big stone wall with these wrought iron fence above it. And a little bit of ledge where you could kind of stand there with your back to the up on the stone wall with your back towards the iron to the wrought iron. And my brother and I sort of clambered up there and were standing there. And my mother was down below us. And I looked at her and, uh, uh, you know, and my mother was incredibly maternal, loving, extraordinary human being. And um, she was getting swept up. With this thing, you know, she was this 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 enormous crowd with its with its energy and its and its and its ideology and its I- idealism, you know, and uh, and people were screaming and they were and uh, and and just they were packed like one on top of the other. And I was very f- afraid that the crowd would shift and we would lose track of her. You know, we would we would lose sight of her. And I was sort of looking down at her and trying to keep my eyes. And where was she going? And you know, I had my younger brother with me, uh, Dimitri. and and. Um, and all of a sudden, as the crowd is yelling, you know, extra Americani, extra Americani, you know, out with the Americans, out with the Americans. My mother, and I've since confirmed this with my with my brother. Unfortunately, my mother died when I was 25. My mother points up at me and my brother up on the ledge and says, Nay Americani. There are the Americans, pointing to me and my younger brother. And and i I, I, I kind of grew up on a heavy dose of Greek mythology, and i I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine that in that moment, I thought of you know Medea that who killed her children, you know, chopped them into bits and threw them off the boat to out of to seek vengeance against uh, jason I think and um so you know, I was really surprised and uh, and I've since confirmed this with Dimitri. you know, I couldn't confirm it with with my mother, unfortunately, and there was no one else there. Dimitri remembers it the same way and um and I don't know what she meant by that outburst and I've given it a lot of thought in the years since, especially in writing this book. And what I've concluded is that my mother had a very beneficent intent, which in a way futilely, she was trying to calm the crowd, you know, saying, not all Americans are bad. Look at these two boys. They're just boys, and they're Americans too. How bad can the Americans have been? You know, that's how I choose to interpret it. But um, it's also possible she was just swept up as we as we do. As you know, we are a, a, an animal that uh, lives in groups. We have a strong propensity to identify with groups, to to surrender our sense of individuality, and to become one uh, and to function as a group. And um, we share this capacity with certain other animals and in a way that's what's at the core of the book. What the book is about is, is about these, these qualities of love and friendship and cooperation and uh, surrendering of the self that, um, that lie at the core of many social mammals um, and that are ultimately forces for good in the world even if sometimes they have odd expressions.
2: That is such a poignant story. The book focuses a lot on this idea, which that story gets at, of human's commonality, which makes me think of an anecdote that I uh, learned about recently, which is about Carl Linnaeus, when he was first documenting in Sistema Naturae the different species in the 18th century. And then when he got eventually to man, he wrote in the Latin phrase, know thyself. Uh, rather than well, writing. A Greek. Is,
1: that's a Greek phrase. Oh se, Greek. Okay. Se
2: exactly. Yes. That's right. Okay. Greek. Um
0: with a nod to Socrates. <laughs> yes. yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly. Which is which you could interpret it in sort of a cheeky way, but it's Latin. also interesting. How dare you
1: suggest in Flat. I'm sorry, go on. Uh,
2: pardon. Yes. Pardon moi. Um, <laughs> but um but but it's interesting too, because it gets at this idea that there isn't really a, a scientific definition even of exactly what it means to be human per se. So I wonder if – could you explain what you mean by our common humanity and yeah, what so the features w- of that are?
1: So one of the arguments that I try to make in the book is that you know there's a lot of emphasis right now in our – in the public sphere worldwide I would say but especially in the United States on our differences, uh, how we are divided by uh, ethnicity or nationality or sexuality or – or, or race or, or wealth or all the other axes that, that um, you know, can be used to categorize and actually divide people. But, um, but I think that there's a way to bridge that divide ironically by looking at what we share in common with animals. Because if we can share the capacity for friendship with elephants and if we can share the capacity for cooperation with dolphins. And if we can share the capacity for teaching with chimpanzees, then we can share those capacities with each other, right? Those are common traits of human beings, seen everywhere, among all humans. Um, so that the move to compare us to animals, I think, is a is a is a kind of a tool of understanding human beings and what we share in common. So that's that's in part what um, why I became so interested in in anim, animal societies is in an effort to understand human societies and the other thing that I want to say is is a kind of a framing is that uh there's been a lot of interest you know what, what this book is about it's not about how genes make us different from each other it's about how genes make us the same as each other so it's a book about, are similarities and it's therefore a book about our common humanity and the parts of our humanity as you mentioned at the introduction that I try to emphasize are those parts which in my opinion have not gotten the attention that they deserve, these these qualities, these good qualities of of love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and, and so forth.
2: In Blueprint, you recount a lot of amazing, both scientific stories and historical <clears throat> tales from cults to shipwrecks to Antarctic research stations that reveal in various ways recurring aspects of human societies that you just hinted at. And you pose a, a really fascinating thought experiment that had been um, previously written by a somewhat obscure but brilliant um, paleontologist named David Raup, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Uh on the geometric analysis of shell coiling to try to illustrate the ways in which the humans are similar. I'm wondering, can you explain this idea of the museum of all possible shells or the museum of all possible animals as Richard Dawkins extended it to, which you have now taken even a step further to focus on not just our physical form, but societies and the way in which we connect to each other?
1: Yeah, that's a very famous paper uh, uh, from the 1960s s, uh, by the, as you said, this paleontologist Raup, who uh, was very interested in was there a systematic way to summarize the the shape of of shells? Uh were there some underlying principles that could give rise to shells? shell, It's like a tongue twister. shell shapes. Yeah. and um, and uh, and the and what he did is is he he came up with three uh, fundamental properties. One had to do with, uh, the opening of the shell and the rate at which it gets bigger and bigger as you move through the shell. One had to do with uh, the, the the way in which the shell elongates up and down an axis, like a slinky moving up and down, whether it's like tightly packed or or compressed. And one had to do with the with the angle at which it uh, it coiled away from its axis. And basically, what he did is, is if you create a cube with those three properties, so. You know, from zero to one, let's say, on each of those properties, so from highest to lowest on each of those properties, and you create this cube. You can in your mind's eye imagine that you have a three-dimensional space that could go from highest to lowest on each of those three properties. What Raup found was that actually only a tiny fraction of that cube had ever been explored by shells. That is, of all the possible shells that could ever have evolved. Uh, only a tiny fraction of them had ever appeared and, and the question was why, uh, one of the questions. But but even before we get to the why question, it's actually very interesting to observe that only a tiny fraction of what was called the morphospace, the space for morphology, the uh, available types of, of morphologies that shells could manifest, only a tiny fraction of that was occupied. Dawkins uh, builds on this metaphor and talks about um, – a museum of all possible—is it shells or animals? I can't remember. It's animals. Animals, mm-hmm. yeah. And and he uses the example, let's say, of herbivores. So imagine he, in his magnificent way, he asks you to imagine a, a museum in which you're walking through their cabinets and their and their aisles and their. Uh, 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 rows and columns, let's say, crisscrossing each other as you walk through this enormous warehouse. Actually, in, in my mind, I remember the scene at the end of Indiana Jones. In that first movie, at the end, when they find the Ark of the Covenant, it goes into this military warehouse and there's this vast warehouse uh, where there are these rows and 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 uh, crisscrossing rows or rows and columns, you can imagine, and then piled up and down like the height at which these boxes were stacked. So, Dawkins asks us to imagine this. And he says, imagine as you're walking down a row, the animals, the herbivores, let's say, are getting smaller and smaller and bigger and bigger. And as you walk across the rows, maybe the pattern on the fur of the animal changes from little tiny you know, patches to bigger patches. And as you go up and down, uh, you get longer necks. You know, At the top, let's say, it would be a giraffe and at the bottom would be like an animal with a tiny, I don't know, a taper or something with a tiny little um, neck or something. And, um, and so you can therefore imagine arraying here now, just with three properties: a coat pattern, a neck length and uh, and size, all the possible herbivores on the planet, and you could go through the space. and so but imagine if you did that, and only a part of the warehouse was full. you know, all the animals were only in one location. Why is that? Well, the argument in the book was that something similar happens with human societies, that in fact, we look around the world and we think, oh my god, you know, there's so much diversity in the way human beings live. It seems vast to us. But if you take a step back and properly uh, describe the total number of ways in which human beings could organize themselves, actually all humans are like a little oasis in the desert, you know, and the rest is just – is the empty quarter of sociology. There's like nothing else out there. All the societies we make, wondrous and diverse though they seem, actually – are just a tiny fraction of all conceivable societies, and you can see this in other ways as well. For example, and and for and, and to be specific, for example, friendship is present in all societies. There's no society in which there's not a thing of friendship. Love is present in all societies. There's no society in which there's no love. Um, cooperation is present in all societies. There's no society in which there's no cooperation. Teaching is present in all societies. There's no society in which there's not affirmative teaching of of other people. So so. So ask you. So that's that's what we're saying. That's like there aren't societies outside that don't have those qualities, um, and and so what 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 I try to do in the book is to describe the that kind of uh, sort of universal society or fundamental society, and uh, and then explain what are some of the reasons that that's the case, and and that's I think what you were alluding to.
0: And so what's equally remarkable is that we not only share these patterns of behavior and these qualities with each other, no matter how vast our differences might seem. But we've also share some of them with beings that are remote on the evolutionary yes. tree. I mean so so and you talk about this in the book, the idea of convergent evolution, that bats and birds both have wings, but of course that seeming affinity obscures massive divergence. They've gotten to that same destination from massively different evolutionary roots, same with eyes, that we have eyes, octopuses have eyes. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and about what implications you think it has.
1: Yeah, I I think for mammals, of which we are, obviously, there may only be one way to be social. Because elephants, when you go and look at elephants, we diverged from elephants about eighty five million years ago. actually, um, and whales sim, uh, similarly actually equally distant. And yet, friendships in cetaceans and friendships in elephants and friendships in us in in very fundamental ways are extremely similar. So if you look at what do friends do, they spend time with each other, for example. Uh, they exchange goods and services. Uh, they are sustained across time. They are emotionally affecting. So we greet our friends with great affect when we haven't seen them. Elephants do the same thing. The, we cooperate uh, with them, elephants and whales, and we, we we help each other in certain particular ways, friends do. So the, the fact that we share those qualities, let's say, with chimpanzees, probably doesn't surprise many people because, you know, we have a common ancestor and that ancestor was probably had many of these qualities. But we also share these qualities with, with animals that are, as you said, quite different than us. And our last common ancestor was, you know, almost a 100 million years ago and that ancestor did not live socially so by independent convergent evolution elephants evolved friendship just like we do and when you go and you study those friendships among elephants for example like uh, Joyce Poole or Cynthia Moss uh, two of the leading uh, ethologists of elephants have done or you map their networks uh, such as uh, Sherman de Silva has done one a former colleague of mine uh, who's mapped el- who she mapped elephant networks in um, in Sri Lanka uh, when you go and you study these friendships, either observationally, like how they interact, or more quantitatively by graphing these networks, you find that they're very the same as ours. The, the structure of the number of friends that elephants have, the probability that elephant friends are friends with each other. There's something known as transitivity, so in, in networks, so that's the probability that my friends are friends with each other. In human beings, that's about twenty to forty percent. So if I have if if I'm friends with Viveka and I and I'm friends with Lindsay. What's the probability that Lindsay and Vivek are friends? It's about – not half. It's about, let's say, one out of three chance that you two will also be friends. That's sort of what's seen in humans. Same thing is seen in elephants um, and on and on and on. And uh, they, they also have the property of preferring – of something known as homophily, which is they prefer to hang out with elephants they resemble just like human beings do. Um, and So you go to these elephants and you study their networks, you study their behavior and you find in them – the same, I would argue, kind of friendship that you find in us and I find that incredibly moving and as I was arguing earlier, um, if we can share this property with with elephants for God's sakes, we can certainly share it with each other. Uh, anyway, and something similar happens with certain cetacean species as well. So they're basically two – species of elephants, Asian and African elephants and they all they're very similar in their friendships as we are. Not all cetaceans have friendships, but most do. And not all primates um, do either by the way, but but some do.
0: How do you actually measure friendship in another species?
1: So that's a really great question. you know so in, in human beings, you could ask them who are your friends? Now interestingly, even in human beings some people think that's not a good thing to do. Um, Because they think people don't always know who their friends are or they might lie to you and they say, really to understand human friendships, what we really need to do is observe the humans and see who they hang out with. So you can do this now with technology. You can fit people with little proximity monitors and I can test like how often – Am I near you? In fact, the devices can be designed so that I can test whether I'm face-to-face with you or back-to-back. You know, like back-to-back doesn't count. I'd be face-to-face with you because they'll they'll send a signal that doesn't penetrate my body and and your device receives it and then it records that we were together for this amount of time. You can use video cameras. You can use email records, phone records. There's lots of sort of very objective ways you can quantify the extent to which people are in contact. Well, that's what we do with animals. We, we see – it's something called the association index. You see what fraction of the time that an animal uh, has does it spend in proximity to another animal. and There are other ways you can do to too. You can look at food sharing. Uh, you can look at uh, – in, in chimpanzees for example, you can look at joint patrols like they go out together to defend a, the territory. Um, You can look at grooming behaviors, for example, in chimps and in other animals too. Do they groom each other and other kinds of altruistic kind of behaviors and specifically you also can focus on animals that do this with each other and they're not related. So we're not talking about – we're talking about unrelated conspecifics. So we're talking about the extent to which animals manifest these behaviors, not for example to their offspring, which is a different kind of a thing. Um, So that's, that's, that's how it's done. And With elephants, who are, which are amazing, uh, the other thing you can see with elephants is, is they, um, they have very elaborate greeting rituals. And this is actually an interesting thing. Many animals greet each other. So far as we know, no animals have leave-taking behaviors like humans say goodbye. We don't think other animals say goodbye. But humans say hello and we do think other animals say hello. And what's amazing about elephants is they say hello in a way that corresponds not – with two things. They say hello in a way that corresponds with how intimate are they with the other elephant, like how friendly, how much of a friend they are, and how long they've been apart. So they have a memory. they like, oh my god, this is my long lost friend. So when you see elephant greetings they have a whole range of greetings now at the upper extreme they make these enormous rumbling uh, noises actually they're subsonic so we often can't hear them uh they, they 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 defecate and they urinate which we don't do of course when we greet our long-lost friends they uh, they have these they're, they're like tears these uh these glands on their eyes that stream this uh this fluid uh, they they put their trunks in each other's mouths they they interconnect their trunks with each other and uh and they and they have a whole spectrum that those I listed lots of behaviors, but only some of those might be manifested, or the whole thing might. All of those behaviors might be manifested. They kind of nuzzle up against each other, um, and 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 ethologists who study this behavior uh, have been able to decode that they just don't do this with any elephant. They do it with elephants that they are socially close to, that they have a longer relationship with, or have spent more time with. And to me, when I when I see these videos, I, I very sadly, I've never been able to go. I had been planning to go to, um, to Sri Lanka actually to, to work there on an elephant preserve, but I've, I've never had the chance to go see it myself. So I've read this stuff and I've seen the videos. When you um, see the videos uh, of, the, uh, of the elephants uh, of doing this, it, it reminds me at least of uh, an international arrivals terminal at, a, at an airport. You know, you you can tell like how long have these two people been apart and how much in love are they? By the way they greet each other, and you see the full spectrum of leaping into each other's arms to like shaking hands, you know, which will code, which will code that. Uh that social interaction.
2: This idea of, of animals even having friends is, in a way, radical to propose. In that, not that you're the first one to propose it, but right. that there are a lot of people who, as you write in the book, consider the idea of saying that animals have friends like a profound anthropomorphism. Friendship has been called the F word, as you say, yes. in primatology. Um, but you make the point, which I think is very apt, that you know to to insist on not calling it friends is just not scientifically or practically useful in any way.
1: Yeah, I think I think that um, I find those arguments. I understand the arguments, but then that sort of defines away the problem. That says only when we see this thing in humans will we call it that by that name. That's sort of scientifically boring to me. You know, that's like saying, well, we will only we'll only call language language when we see it in humans. You know, other forms of communication, or or we'll only call violence violence when we see it in humans. We won't call it in other animals. And uh, you know, there's been a whole. Resurgent interest in the notion of war—you know—is war only seen in humans? Well, no. We have some things that look like war that are seen in, in chimpanzees, um, but I think to define war so that you know it requires you know planning and um, the use of weapons and however else you define it, such that you can't see it in other animals, you know, defines it away. So I think that if you set out and and define something of interest, like let's say cooperation. You'll find cooperation in other animals, not just in humans, and same with friendship. You will find friendship in other animals, um, not just in us.
0: There's something so haunting about the goodbye, the lack of data for any goodbye yes. utterance from another species. If um, if that were the last rampart yes. <laughs> that we say goodbye.
1: Well, I mean, I you know, I I try to be careful with that in the book because, so far as we know, you know, so first of all, to say goodbye, you need to have a a, a mental capacity to predict the future. So one of the big debates about friendship is that. Like people say, well, how, how, can you, how can animals be friends if they have no concept of the future? But I think the response to that is they don't have to have a concept of the future. They just have to have a memory of the past. They have to remember that you were nice to me before. I like you. So therefore, I'm going to be nice to you right now. I don't have to say, you know, you are nice to me now. I need to remember that to be nice to you in the future. So the first point is that only a memory of the past is required in my opinion – to uh, be able to have a friendship. You have to remember, remember, you have to remember who is who, right? You have to have identity. That's another crucial thing, by the way. Each animal, we take it for granted that, for example, our faces are all different one from another, and that I can recognize that your face is different than her face, but actually the capacity to do that, to express individuality, for example, with our facial structure, and to detect it is evolutionarily demanding and it will only arise in circumstances in which it's advantageous. We, we don't needlessly do this. There's a reason we do this and one of the reasons we do this is, for example, to recognize our children. So you care for your child. You don't care for someone else's child or to recognize who to reciprocate to. Like you're a nice person. I remember that you're a nice person. If I give you something, you'll, give, you'll help me out. So identity is also crucial. So, so identity is important. Memory is important to friendship. Emotions are also important. We can talk about that. That's interesting. These animals don't have leave-taking behavior so far as we know, they, but they do have um, grieving behaviors. And it is moving to think maybe we are the only animals that say goodbye. Now, interestingly, there's one kind of goodbye that we say, which is grief, uh, You know, which is when someone dies, we grieve them. Now, that's—I've sort of made a little maneuver there because that's, of course— it's not like I'm saying goodbye to you now, expecting to see you in the future. It's like a different kind of goodbye we're talking about. But here too, I find it very interesting that we share the capacity for grief with elephants and for sure chimpanzees and, and we think with orcas uh, too. There have been some amazing uh, case studies of orcas that appear to grieve. And I think this is also related that the capacity for grief, the expression of grief I think is intimately connected with our capacity for friendship and again for identity. The capacity for grief in my view is, is intimately related to the capacity for social interactions and again for identity.
2: Early in your career, you became um, very prominent for your work on a related topic of the widowhood effect in people, which is also known as sort of the dying of a broken heart effect whereby one yeah. person dies and the, their spouse dies. And then you showed that this actually extends and ripples throughout their social network beyond just their immediate spouse. And in the book you tell, in your chapter on Animal Friends, an amazing story about Nikola Tesla and yes. his, his own dying of a broken heart to do with a pigeon.
1: Yeah, he was uh, he was an odd guy. I discovered as I was reading a little bit about his life, and uh, you know he was a genius. He's getting more acclaim now than he did for a long time. You know he the, the Tesla vehicles, of course, are named after him. But you know he he worked on electromagnetism and and many other things. I don't think he ever had a. I don't know enough about his biography, honestly, so I'm, I'm not sure about this. But I don't think he ever had a, a, a. I don't think he was ever married. I don't think he had a personal relationship. But he loved pigeons. And um, he lived in the, I think, the Saint Regis in New York City, and he kept his windows open, and took care of pigeons in New York City, and and they would come in and out of, fly in and out of his his hotel room, and and he had special bird seed for them, and he once found a a, a pigeon that was injured, and he talks about how he used all his mechanical abilities, which were considerable, uh, to to heal this pigeon, and. Um, he was eventually asked to leave the hotel because of the ruckus the other guests were complaining about. He would you know, attract the birds and the noise and I imagine the bird poop and everything else. And He did leave. He didn't want to give up his pigeons. and uh, He had one pigeon which um, in the book, I only put a tiny part of the excerpt because I didn't want to overdo it. But when you read his description of this pigeon, it's almost sexual honestly. It is like he's in love with this pigeon. And it, he talks about how it looked at him with special eyes and how he – I think at some point he almost speaks mystically about how there were beams of light coming out of the pigeon's eyes. I mean it's its very, very extreme and I, I excerpted part of that letter because I didn't want to go off on that tangent. I just wanted to communicate he really fell close to this pigeon. <laughs> and, uh, you're getting the
0: inside look. Yes, exactly.
1: Getting the inside <laughs> look. And the pigeon fell close to him. I mean uh, also – and interestingly, incidentally, a lot of our pets are social animals. Like dogs and cats and birds and stuff, like they, they live in groups too, you know, horses uh, and um, a lot of domesticated, not all, a lot of domesticated animals and and birds too, they live in flocks. So the, the pigeon seemed to like Nikola Tesla and he certainly loved the pigeon. Anyway, this pigeon died and uh, six months later, Tesla dies. And he talks about how when the pigeon died, I don't know if I have it handy here, maybe it's nearby. Let me see if I happen to have it... Uh, Here, Tesla talks about, he says, uh, in 1929, in an interview, he says, Sometimes I feel that by not marrying, I made too great a sacrifice to my work. So I have decided to lavish all the affection of a man no longer young on the feathery tribe. I am satisfied if anything I do will live for posterity. But to care for those homeless, hungry, or sick birds is the delight of my life. It is my only means of playing." And then when this particular bird of his died, not some time later, he said, Something went out of my life. I knew my life's work was finished. And I only quote that passage because the rest is crazy uh, what he writes about, how he felt about this pigeon. And he died just a few months later.
2: Yeah, that's an amazing extension, though, to see the widowhood effect not even go through the social network, but then go beyond our our species, too.
1: Yes, yes. And I think that anyone that has loved a pet will know that, you know, um, I'm not saying it's it's not the same as when your partner dies or your child dies by any stretch of imagination. But I think some of the physiology, if you're really attached to that pet, is similar.
2: The focus on animals as having societies I think is very important as well, even going back to think about the elephants and, and wild animals. Because often in conversations about conservation or population numbers, particularly with creatures like elephants what are, that are declining yes. and on route to extinction so quickly.
1: I think more than 90 percent of the elephants have died in yeah, the last and that, century. And yeah.
2: Presumably, they'll be functionally completely extinct in our lifetime. But yes. it's interesting that, the, that you've spoken before and you have a wonderful analogy that you use in the book and elsewhere about how human social networks could be considered like carbon atoms, like how the yes. humans are connected. You connect them one way. You say you get diamonds. You connect them another way, the same carbon atoms, and you get graphite, and so it is with people. And then to think about animal societies like that I think is a really valuable contribution too because then you realize – it's not just a sheer how many – what's the population of elephants left in Africa question but that the emergent properties of what elephants are, just like our emergent properties of yes. what people are, is inherently linked to the yes. ways in which they're connected and all together, um, which I think completely changes the game when you start to think about what it what does it mean to save a species, particularly yes. as we enter this sixth extinction and era of climate change.
1: Yes. No, I think just to build on that metaphor, so you, know, you could take a, a diamond and crush it. So you get, in the limit, little tiny carbon atoms, and those carbon atoms wouldn't have the properties that they had when they were assembled together in the form of a diamond, which had this property of refracting light and being very hard and so forth. I mean, Europe. That, that's a, that's actually a general analogy, That's a general statement about, as you said, emergent properties. So, so there are these properties that arise from groups that do not reside within individuals; that are properties of the groups. And in the case of elephants, you know, when we, when we, when we, through habitat loss and through through poaching, we decimate the population. We don't just lose those individuals; we lose something broader um, that those elephants had created with each other—a uh, kind of way of being in a society. And uh, more generally, though, just to take a further step, a bit of a lateral step, there. are uh, there's another quality to social animals of the – mammals, social mammals that we're discussing. Um, you have to sort of – insect, termites, wasps, bees, ants and so forth, there's sort of a – the eusocial insects are kind of a different category of thing and there's some other crazy exceptions in the animal kingdom. But for now, we're talking about the social mammals. Um, they, they also assemble themselves into these societies and another property of such societies is the capacity for culture. Elephants have culture; they have things they teach each other that are transmitted intergenerationally from generation to generation. For example, the location of water. So you have these matriarchs that learned when they were young where to find water every, you know, whenever El, El Niño strikes every 11 years or whatever. In the corresponding part of Africa, there's a, a drought, and they have to go great distances to find water. And they remember and they teach each other, you know, across time. Uh, or they um, they teach each other uh, different kinds of um, uh, practices relating to uh, food, how to get food, and uh, and and certain certain um, things related to how to defend their themselves when there are lions nearby, and and so forth. And of course, chimpanzees have much more elaborate forms of culture, very distinctive uh, forms of culture. And if you look at populations, widely distributed populations throughout Africa of chimpanzees, this group over here hunts for termites using these particular tools in this particular fashion and finds water in this way by wadding up leaves and dipping them into ponds. And This other population of chimpanzees some thousand miles away does all those things but does them completely differently. They have a different repertoire, different culture which is transmitted. One of the key aspects of culture is that it's transmitted across generations, not just laterally. It persists. So, so another quality of society is this 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 um, emergent property I would say of the society which is this this, this this is culture and when we decimate elephant populations we don't just kill them we also wipe out their culture.
0: going back to this idea of um, convergent evolution and, and the remarkable fact that out of all of the universe of possible configurations we align both within humans and with so many other animals. There's a philosopher um, named Sharon Street who's published a paper called The Darwinian Dilemma for Moral Realism, and she's expressing this view that if you can tell a story about the evolution of a given trait or a given perception, that that is giving you license to doubt whether or not that trait or faculty is tracking something real. The view is that evolutionary explanations for our ability to be good somehow undermine or should undermine our confidence or potentially undermine our confidence in the existence of moral facts.
1: So they define, I think I'm following you now, so they say in order for something to truly be deemed moral, it cannot be something, for example, we wouldn't we wouldn't deem our capacity for vision as a moral fact, but our capacity for justice if we evolve that capacity strictly and identically as we evolved our capacity for vision, then we wouldn't treat it as a topic of moral philosophy. It would be outside and therefore not worthy of our consideration, something like that. Right,
0: right. And I mean in the book, you do engage moral philosophers and and, um, I think the case of convergent evolution is fascinating for this debate because it presents us with a situation where we have a being as remote as a cephalopod having eyes like we do, and as you've shown, cooperating in ways like we do, which is far more profound from the perspective of moral philosophy because how we cooperate expresses um, views we have about what's good and bad and so forth.
1: First of all, I would say I find it very interesting that most of our virtues that moral philosophers would care about are actually social virtues. So we don't really care if you love yourself or are kind to yourself or just to yourself. We care if you are Love others or kind to others or just to others. So from the perspective of the book, these capacities, these moral qualities of love and kindness and fairness are capacities that we evolved to be able to express and we also see in other animals. So they're not just cultural, they're not just abstract philosophical principles. We have the capacity for those things. Now those, to my eye, does not make them less interesting as an object of inquiry for moral philosophers, first point. Second point, there's this interesting argument that uh, some evolutionary biologists have made, Weinstein has made this argument, that um, what's encoded in us, in our psychology by virtue of our evolution is not, this is subtle, is not a principle. It's not, for example, reciprocate or be fair, something like that. But rather what we evolved to be able to do which is very special in our species is to have moral arguments. In fact, it's the capacity to disagree with each other which is very highly evolved which ironically serves the purpose of binding us together because you can't really disagree with yourself. I mean I suppose some philosophers do. Disagreement and and argumentation is a social property so you can step back from the content of the morals and just say the capacity for moral deliberation so we can kind of avoid the are the the debate about whether we evolved a certain principle of justice or another No what we evolved is the capacity to argue about it and that that served a purpose because otherwise the argument would go why would we have this ability you know, us, a lot of these evolutionary psychology debates can, again, become a reductio ad absurdum or a just-so story. You know, like if you always say, well, why would we have the thing that we have? Then anything we have must have a reason and so therefore you, there's no events that occur by chance. It's deterministic, as you said. You know, so I uh, – anyway, so so in response to your point, I would say that the claim that certain moral features like, like – love or friendship or generosity or cooperation or altruism, maybe ones for which there is an evolutionary basis, to me, does not make them less worthy of moral inquiry, nor does that relieve the moral philosophers of their heavy burden of figuring out <laughs> what it means.
0: And the fact that we've reached the same route from such different yes. means, you could argue, is actually supports the moral realist position.
1: Yes, I would say.
0: It's interesting, the arguing point, Bertrand Russell has this great quote about, I, I think it's always prefer intelligent dissent to passive agreement yes. because the former presupposes a deeper affinity. Yes. Then you have a battlefield to meet yes.
1: on. Yes. And also, you learn more from the people you disagree with. I have a friend who I disagree with. I, I really like this man a lot. And uh, we disagree about most things, uh, but it's a lot of, he's smart. I learn so much from him when I argue with him not to say i don't like the company of my friends and agreeing but but i think that uh, incidentally that's something that's also in in short supply in our society right now the the recognition that you learn more and there's something to be said for for disagreement uh, but that's another whole topic.
2: But it's a relevant one, too, to animals in particular. And if you see, Do we think
1: animals disagree?
2: Potentially. I, but the the direction I was going with it was more if you think about our common animality, even stepping back from the common humanity, just as there are differences between you and your friend or between different cultures that are, are actually quite provocative and interesting and cause us to reflect and see ourselves in you. Yeah. So it is if we share so many of these traits with other animals, if you can try to understand, obviously in a limited way, but nonetheless try to understand what the world is like, to an elephant it gives you access to the world in a way that our own limited perception doesn't so just as you know potentially the number of you know conversations you're having with people who are different due to various societal factors yes. decreasing and the number of animals globally yes. is also decreasing like there's a there's a some sort of profound sense no, of loss no i think are saying
1: you're saying that our ability let's see how to put this exactly what you're saying i think is a good point which is that if you really want to cultivate your empathy do it with animals. Imagine what it's like to be an animal because if you can actually think of what it's like to be an elephant, you will be even better with human beings. Maybe I'm, if I've understood what you're saying. Uh, but even as I was telling you about disagreement, I remember one of my favorite examples. This is work that Ian Cousin has done. Uh, he studies flocking behavior in birds. Imagine you're a flock of birds on the coast of California and you have to migrate you know, 4,000 miles over the Pacific to get to a breeding ground, which is a little tiny island. Every bird has a memory of where it came from when it did the previous migration and of where it must go to and some insight into how it should navigate. So should it go go due west or should it go west-southwest or west-south – what is south-southwest or whatever the hell it is, you know, the little fine gradations in which direction it should go in. And every bird in the flock has a slightly different opinion about which direction it should go. Now, of course, over the course of 4,000 miles, a slight, you know, change in angle will result in you completely missing your breeding ground and I mean, dying you know you'll overshoot there's no land to land in so you just fall into the water and die well what do the birds do so every bird has a slightly different opinion and most people have the intuition that actually they should maybe average their opinion so they should all they should the flock should move in the average direction and that and that actually averaging the opinions of all the birds about which direction they should fly will eliminate all the error and noise in the birds' memories and get them to land in the exact location where, where they should go. And It turns out that in fact, this is what the, uh, what the birds do. They average their opinion. The flock moves as a mass, integrating the knowledge that all the birds have, creating an emergent property, which is the successful navigation to the long, the far distant place. But they only do that if their disagreements are small only if the birds have slightly different opinions about which way to fly. If the birds have big disagreements, then they don't average. So now imagine that half the birds think, oh, we should just, on the coast of California, we should fly north. And half the birds think, we should fly west. If they average their opinion, then they will fly northwest and they'll all die. All of them will die because it's neither north nor west.
0: Like the average of the earth is underwater.
1: Yes. Yes. So, So the question is, What should the birds do when they have big disagreements? And the amazing thing is that when the disagreements get too big, the birds switch from using the average to voting. They vote. So when there's large disagreements between the birds, they go where the simple majority of birds wants to go. And the reason this is helpful is that the average strategy results in 100% of the flock dying with certainty. 100% 100% chance of 100% of the flock dying, whereas the voting strategy results in 50% chance of 100% of the flock surviving. So it's a huge improvement to switch from averaging to voting when the birds have large disagreements. So I take back what I said about uh, you know animals may not have disagreements with each other. They might actually even have disagreements.
0: That is an extraordinary story. What does it actually mean to have the bird vote?
1: Uh, let's see how to put this exactly. The birds... Collectively, move the flock moves where the simple majority of the birds wishes to go. And what Kuzin did is he showed that how much does the disagreement have to be before they switch strategies? There's a specific spot in the point in the distribution where the birds say, okay, "Up until this level of disagreement, we're just going to average our what we think." But when we get to a really, you know, I don't, I'm trying to think on my feet here about like what a good example would be. Like, you know, if you had a group of friends and they were debating whether to have. Uh, You know, uh, some kind of cuisine, you know, go pick a restaurant. And if there were small differences, you know, Italian, Greek, Turkish, it's all about the same, you know, just we'll just have, you know, we'll have all of them. Uh, But if, you know, if it's a big difference, you know, Greek and Chinese food, well, you really can't mix those cuisines, you know, like you have to just pick one or the other. That's a crazy analogy.
2: Doesn't the fact that the birds care enough to go about this voting process and to, you know, argue in a way about where to go, Imply. No, I don't think they're
1: arguing or okay. caring exactly. But the flock, I, would, I could use the word caring with respect to the flock maybe. I don't know. Go okay. on. What are you going to well, say? Well, what
2: I was going to say is I'm not convinced that they don't have a sense of the future. Like wouldn't – to make that worthwhile, they have to be thinking about – the future in that sense to go back I to an earlier con- earlier content?
1: I don't know. I'm not prepared to say that. And I'm not prepared to say anything. I, I, I wanted to see the evidence. Even if we found animals that had a sense of future, going back to what we we're talking about earlier, that's not enough. We also want them to have leave-taking behaviors, right? We want them to say goodbye. So it's not just, <laughs> we, it's not just that they have to anticipate the future. We had a further requirement in our earlier conversation.
0: It's interesting because, right, because I think it, it does a little bit turn on that distinction you were bringing out between the flock and the individual caring because I'm thinking like like, supposing we had some intelligent species that was trying to model an experiment on humans and looking at whether we had a sense of the future based on our collective behavior, I mean, around like the climate. Yes, you could say that we have a uniquely poor ability to <laughs> yeah, or they might those, this
1: this alien intelligence studying us might say, you know they're pretty good about thinking about ten year horizons, but they really don't think about the future beyond ten years. you know they they build houses mm-hmm. that last a hundred years, they make financial investments with a five- year horizon. they they reproduce, you know, with a thirty year horizon. But actually, they have no sense of the future more than 100 years, these humans. I mean, yes, you could imagine they would come to that conclusion by looking at our behavior.
0: To close, we like to ask each of our guests for books or films um, that have influenced how you think about animals or just had resonated with you or impacted your thinking.
1: Uh, God, that's – I should have prepared better for that. I didn't know that question was coming. I We I like have,
0: to take you off guard.
1: Yes. I mean, I have um, – I don't have – I mean, I've just finished reading thousands of articles about animals and uh, – hundreds of books uh, by other scholars, you know, primatologists and ethologists. And I don't know which books I would recommend per se. These are very academic tomes, you know, about animal behavior. In terms of books, you know that I like that have been had a big impact on me, they have nothing to do with animals, interestingly. so i I, I read the uh, I read The Iliad every five years, and I find it extraordinary. and i I just uh, I find Hector to be a, An unbelievable figure, uh, just a heroic figure, and um, he's the real hero—not Achilles or Odysseus um, or Agamemnon in uh, in the Iliad. And um, I don't recollect that Hector has anything to say about animals. I read. um,
2: Well, he is an animal if he's a human.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Fine. If we're going to grant that. I also like very much I'm reaching now for you'll see my reach I, I like the last days of Socrates uh
0: Oh and, I love that
1: book. Yes, I read it every 5 years the 4 you know the Plato wrote them not in the order in which they're in read in modern times the chronological order but it's it's astonishing actually to just to see what Socrates does it just it's it's and to see his uh fearlessness in the face of death is is uh I'm. Con- I mean, I'm, it, it's it's just an unbelievable, unbelievable, very quick read. I also like. I've been rereading every five or ten years is um, "Man's Search for Meaning," Victor Frankel. Um, you know, I also think is extraordinary. I mean, Victor Frankel, after he gets out of the concentration camp, he writes "Man's Search for Meaning." It's a short book in like four days, like almost immediately upon his release or his rescue. And the modern uh, editions of that book in a- have that, which is a remarkable thing to read. But even more. And Actually, the, one of the principal ideas in the book is that you can't control the external world but you can control your inside yourself, which is interesting to think about in our, with respect to our conversation about animals, like, like what kind of self-awareness do animals have? But in the modern editions of that book, um, Frankel, they also include uh, letters that uh, Frankel uh, wrote after he returns I think to Vienna. It was in Austria. So here's a man who was betrayed by the residents of his city, his, uh, his pregnant wife, and his parents, he stayed behind. He could have escaped with his wife and child, and pregnant wife, but um, but he but he chose not to because he had elderly parents. As a result, he get all of them get taken to the camps. They all die except for him, and um, he goes back to Vienna afterwards. I think it's Vienna. It's in Austria, and um, he lives among the people who did nothing to help him, and he builds his institute there for 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 logotherapy and and uh, basically forgives them and. Uh, it's extraordinary, those letters. I mean it just absolutely – and has an interesting life. Marries a woman who I think he met in the camps. I can't remember all the details of his life. So those are three books that um, loom very large you know, in, um, in my life. I suppose they're very ordinary uh, choices. Um, but I'm trying to think of um, – of, uh, I mean of course I read a lot of popular science. I like my friend Dan Gilbert's book, Stumbling on Happiness, I think is a witty and very profound book. I like, um, I like Steve Pinker's books, uh, you know, um, Our Better Angels of Our Nature I think was a really terrific book. Um, there's a, a review of that book which in the, in the Economist I think which said that he writes like an enlightenment philosopher and I thought, wow, that's a great review to get. I like, uh, I like some of Richard Wrangham's books. Uh, he, um, he wrote Catching Fire and he has a new book on, uh, on, um, on violence. Uh, uh, books on animals. Uh, there's technical books that I like. Uh, Franz de Waal, who studied a lot of animal uh, primate behavior and elephant behavior. Of course, we talked about the elephants. They're both uh, Joyce Poole and um, Cynthia Moss, both have autobiographies, uh, which are very, they had extraordinary adventures. Actually, both of those women did both of their books. They've written many books. They're both remarkable.
0: Well, Dr. Christakis, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much to you both for having me.
0: Thank you, too, to our great producer, Ryan McAvoy, and the Yale
2: Broadcast Studio, and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Dr. Nicholas Christakis and his magnificent new book, Blueprint. Thanks for listening.